You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Melissa, thanks. I'll see you again soon. And COVID cases are rising. There's supreme drama in D.C. today and rethinking the reopening. A flood of headlines for investors as selling pressure creeps back into the market. Just how worried should you be? We'll dig into all of that. Plus, we'll talk about what's wrong with Wells Fargo. It's underperforming its peers, could be on the brink of layoffs. And is the only big bank to cut its dividend? Is this stock untouchable or ripe for a comeback? A bull bear debate is ahead. And a tale of two retailers, a roller coaster rebound, and college sports in jeopardy is all ahead in rapid fire today. We do begin with a sell-off, though, and Bob Bassani is here with the very latest. Bob? Uh, Kelly, uh, the reopening story, a little tougher for a lot of investors. That's the key mover of the market, as well as some issues about how strong the stimulus programs are going to be in the future. Let's take a look uh, at the markets here. S&P 500 has been a little bit wider range than it has been in the last few weeks. We were uh, 31.15 was our low, but we were well off of that. 31.79 was the high. So that's an 80 point range, almost 800 points in the Dow, uh, significantly larger than normal here. And depressingly familiar situation here where technology stocks, generally, even on days when the market is down, doing a little bit better than most of the rest of the market. And cyclical stocks, energy, industrials, technology, if you put up uh, the the, uh, sector chart there, generally underperforming. This has been a problem for a long time now. So we've been seeing this issue going on uh, for really four or five or six weeks here. Uh, In terms of uh, individual sectors, retail, for example, having a tough day. Walgreens Boots Alliance gave a Rather poor earnings guidance, and they missed. This may be a a sign of what's happening in terms of uh, uh, guidance for the the future. Remember, 40% of companies have declined to provide guidance, but Walgreens down significantly. Most of the big retailers also are down as well. Uh, Energy stocks are weak here. Apache and some of the big uh, names like Baker Hughes also weak, but energy's been acting poorly for the last several weeks. Same situation with the banks. We're waiting for J.P. Morgan to report on Tuesday, but regional banks that rely on Uh, individual consumer loans and corporate loans, as well as wealth management, don't have trading operations. They've been acting very poorly, obviously signaling uh, difficulties ahead, potentially, uh, with the loan situation. Uh, All the reopening stocks I mentioned generally are down, including the airlines. Mega caps flat to slightly down uh, as well. Bottom line here, uh, Kelly, is technology. The market believes that's a winner, even if the reopening story gets difficult. But everything else really does depend on how well the reopening is going and to a lesser extent on the stimulus programs. Back to you. All right, Bob. Thank you, sir. Bob Bassani. Meantime, the Supreme Court out today with two rulings involving the release of President Trump's tax records with a win and a loss for the president. Eamon Javers is here with the very latest. Eamon. Yeah, Kelly, that's right. It was a split decision at the Supreme Court for the president of the United States today. Remember, the two cases here were about two different sets of subpoenas, one from the Manhattan District Attorney for the president's financial documents from his accounting firm and from his banks, the other from Democratic-controlled committees in the House of Representatives also looking for similar financial documentation. The court looked at uh, both cases differently. In the case of the Manhattan District Attorney, what the court said is that there is no presidential immunity from criminal investigation. The president's legal team had argued that the president should have some temporary immunity from any criminal investigation looking into him, especially from a state-level entity like the Manhattan District Attorney, which is not even a federal office. Uh, The court didn't buy the president's argument there. That means that that case 
can proceed. The president still has some legal options there, uh, and there's still some maneuvering to come. But it looks like the end result down the line will be that the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, will get uh, some of those financial documents at some point in the future. Not likely that we'll see those publicly. All of that protected by grand jury secrecy as the process moves forward. The other case involved the House Democrats and their request for similar financial documents. Uh, the court didn't make a decision here, instead returned it all to the lower court, said that they hadn't looked at this carefully enough. That means that Democrats in Congress won't be able to get access to those financial documents before the election, which certainly could have had political implications. The president not happy about any of this. Here's his tweet uh, lamenting that courts in the past have given broad deference, but not me. The president frustrated here by the outcome uh, in the Vance case, but ultimately, Kelly, it's not clear that any of that information, even if it is turned over, will see the light of day before Election Day. So that could be a win politically for the president if he's able to run out the clock, if there's any damaging information in any of that material. Kelly. Yeah, Eamon, still people were making... Some hay of the market's reaction. Uh, you know, we were falling obviously throughout the session, but it did seem as though there was some, I guess, concern expressed about what the Supreme Court said. Would that simply go back to whether these, if they move forward, maybe the Vance case uh, would hold some difficulties for the president's reelection? Look, the president's critics have said the president would have released all these documents publicly like other presidents have done if he felt there was nothing damaging in them, and therefore he must be hiding something. The president simply says uh, this is presidential harassment. He doesn't have to turn over these documents, and, and he doesn't want to. Uh, but if there is some kind of bombshell revelation in there, the president doesn't have the net worth that he's claimed he's had, or the president engaged in some kind of financial wrongdoing, that would certainly have some implication if those documents came out uh, before Election Day. Uh, but at this point, it looks like that's not going to happen. Uh, it does not seem like, you know, reporters like me, uh, our viewers are going to have any access to that information uh, before the voting starts in November, Kelly. All right. Eamon, thank you. We appreciate it. Eamon Javers in Washington with all the latest. Now, from that growing D.C. drama to the wave of bad news surrounding COVID cases and what we're calling the D opening of the economy, the market is more than a bit on edge today. Dow's down 335. Should we start to fear a long slog for stocks and with earnings season just around the corner? Here with me now are Nancy Tangler, the chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments, and Michael Kushma is chief investment officer of global fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Great to have you both here. And Nancy, granted, the Nasdaq continues to act very well. Are we just going to be stuck with this trend for some time? I think so, Kelly. I mean, this trend began in 2000, you know, after the 2008 crisis, where companies were moving more toward technology. We've been talking about this trade for a long time. It's not a pandemic trade for us. We think that um, the, the increase in CapEx software at the expense of hardware CapEx has been powerful, and we have benefited from that in our portfolios. And we think it continues with cloud-based spending continuing to rise. Uh, CIOs coming out in the J.P. Morgan survey and saying, yep, we're going to increase spending 30 uh, percent this year and continue on into next year. So I know that it's a trade that people love to hate, but we continue to like the names uh, in the space that we've been talking about on your show, Palo Alto Network, Salesforce, uh, Splunk, and we added a new name today, which unfortunately I can't talk about. Yeah, understood, but at least you gave us three there. You also like some of the chip and semiconductor manufacturing names, Texas Instruments, Avago, or Broadcom, for instance. So, Michael Cushman, let me turn to you and ask about sort of the landscape here. I mean, where does this send rates? You know, we can see a market performing well, a NASDAQ doing quite well, um, rates kind of going nowhere. 
I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I've been, I've been in this business for a long time, you know, decades, and I can't remember the last time, if ever, I've seen the 10-year U.S. Treasury end every single month basically within two basis points of 65 basis points. Hmm. And today we're, we're flirting with actually driving a little bit lower than that number in, in on the 10-year Treasury. And I think it, it will stay there. I think the commentary coming out of the Fed suggests they're still very wary and concerned about all the uncertainty about how the pandemic will play out over the next several quarters. And they are committed basically to provide as much liquidity and support as possible to keep interest rates very low. And their policies and actions have been credible enough to achieve that objective. I don't think they really desire to drive them on purpose much lower. They can be driven there either, obviously, by private sector forces, like today with a risk-off move with Treasuries rallying. But I think that they are going to stay at these very rock-bottom levels indefinitely. Yeah, which is unbelievable to think about. I mean, you think about those who depend on you know, higher rates, uh, compound interest, you know, pension funds who need to hit a much better return than this. And in the chart we showed, Michael, while you were talking is striking. I mean, it shows just almost a flat line, whether it's the 10 year, the five year, just parked at these levels. Why are we even talking about the Fed needing to cap bond rates? It seems to me like they're already capped. Exactly. I don't know why all the fuss over yield curve control or whoever of the phrase the Fed uses for this for this idea is already there through a combination of forward guidance which has a lot of credibility at the moment, and, and in addition, quantitative easing. The combination of the two has been very successful at keeping rates at, at, at stable at a very low level, and I don't expect that policy to change. And Nancy, that is relevant for what's going on in the stock market, isn't it? I mean, we've seen stocks rise with rising rates. We've seen them rise with falling rates. But for this current trade to be supported, especially these tech uh, high multiple kind of investments, low rates are an important part of that. Yeah, definitely. And Michael raises an excellent point. The trends in both equity and fixed income are very long time are a very long time in coming, but they've been accelerated by the pandemic. And so what we're seeing is is things changing at rapid speed. And that, in my experience, I've been in this business at least as long as Michael. And that's usually what you see. You see these long sort of secular moves and then super acceleration. We saw it in the 90s. We're seeing it again now, catalyzed by the pandemic. So I'm not saying tech is the only bit place to be, but I've said this before. If tech doesn't work, nothing works. Yeah. Because many of the companies in, cons- in the consumer discretionary space, for example, are benefiting from digit- the digitization of their of their underlying business. So we think this is an important, important component, and we continue to add to our overweight. Nancy, let me ask you one final question here before we go. For those who are in uh, either these specific trades or other tech trades that have been working and they wonder when to get out, you know, are you going to look, are you going to get out when they stop working, basically? Do you get out when some sort of, you know, the fundamentals change with if interest rates spike, if all of a sudden there's a big rotation to other parts of the market? I mean, is there something that says to you, hey, it's time or, you know, do you hit certain price targets and you say it's time to get out of these or are you just in kind of wait and see mode? No, we're not at hold forever. You know, we were bullish on Apple in 2013 and we've begun selling it. Now, we've, we're actually even lowering our guideline, which means we're not just trimming it because it became an outsized portion of our portfolio. The valuation work that we do tells us that the stock is pretty fully valued. We've also been trimming back on Microsoft, but we think that one has some room to run. So it's it's obviously based on our proprietary modeling, but in fact, we're not holding these things forever. We're going to take profits when it makes sense. Yeah. And and I but I think 
you don't want to be too quick on this because these trends, you know, do continue for some period of time. And cash flows, uh, thanks to low interest rates, are driving some of the near-term performance in these stocks. Interesting. All right. Thank you both today. Appreciate it. Nancy Tangler and Michael Kushma on these markets. Speaking of bonds, we have a news alert out of the bond pits right now. There were 30-year notes up for auction at the top of the hour. How'd it go, Rick? You know, it's really pursuant to your conversation. They were grabbing them like there was no tomorrow. 19 billion 30-year bonds at a yield at the auction of 1.33. It was well below the when issue market. Lower yield, higher prices. Price spectacular. One basis point from the all-time low auction yield, which was 132, and that was back in March. Let's go through it. The bid to cover, 2.34, meaning $2.34, chasing every dollar available. A very strong, I'm sorry, 2.50. 2.34 is 10 auction average. That was best bid to cover this year. And if you look at indirect bids, and this is the one that hits the home run, at 72%, this reflects large foreign customers. It is the best, the highest uh, indirect bidding percentage I see going back to the reemergence of the 30-year bond when it showed up after they canceled it right at the turn of the century. 10.5 on direct bidders. That's the only thing light here. That's the lightest since March of just this year. And dealers take 17.4%. That was the smallest dealer takedown since December. That's a good thing. So this was a rock and roll 30-year auction. Foreigners really stepped up to the plate. Well, that's because it's the highest yield on the curve. Kelly, back to you. Exactly. Rick, people will say, well, why did not have the government do a bunch more 30-year paper then? Kind of refinance everything as far out as you can with these rock-bottom rates. I don't think we need to convince the government to issue more debt. I think they're doing quite fine on their own. <laughs> Fair enough. I just meant, you know, longer term. Uh, anyway, Rick, it's good to see you. Uh, we appreciate it. Rick Santelli with those strong auction results for the 30-year today. Coming up, Wells Fargo is underperforming its peers. It cut its dividend. It could be on the verge of massive layoffs. What's going wrong? And should investors take a bet on a comeback? A bull bear debate is ahead. Plus, low rates, low inventory, high unemployment, and expiring eviction protections. A lot of forces are at work in the house market today. So what's the reality? We'll ask the CEO of Realogy next on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. The CARES Act moratorium on rental evictions expires this month. And while some states have extended protections, many have not. Diana Olick joins us now with a closer look at where in the country we could see the biggest spikes. Diana? Yeah, Kelly, by the end of September, up to 23 million, or that's one in five American renters, could be evicted from their homes. And that's according to analysis from the Aspen Institute. Arizona, California, Nevada, among those with the highest share of renters at risk. But when you look at the actual number of renters, it's close to 4 million Californians, 1.5 million Floridians, more than 2 million Texans, and 1.5 million New Yorkers. Aspen factored in renter household incomes, savings, and rental costs by state as well as real-time surveys on renter confidence from the U.S. Census. And those numbers were released 
yesterday showing that in the last week of June, 76% of renters had made their full payments, but just 38% were highly confident that they could make their July payments. 12% had no confidence at all. Now, renters in single-family homes appear to be doing better making their payments, but single-family rental REITs like American Homes for Rent and Invitation Homes are at risk. And renters in multifamily apartments are having a harder time. REIT names like Camden in Texas and Avalon Bay, which is heavy in New York, they could also take a hit. Kelly? All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick, we appreciate it. Joining me now to talk more about the real estate market with the recent spike in COVID cases, uh, which is raising concerns about the housing recovery. Where are we right now and which markets are doing best? Ryan Schneider is the president and CEO of Realogy Holdings, the parent company of Century 21, Coldwell Banker, and Sotheby's, among others. Ryan, it's good to have you here. Diana was just outlining some of the problems in the rental market. Do you expect that to ripple through into the housing market overall? Well, Kelly, thank you for having me. We're seeing something pretty different on the purchase and sales side at the moment. You know, the COVID impact was huge in terms of the negative hit in late March and early and April. But May has been an improving market for sure in terms of new transactions. June was even stronger than May and up year over year. And even the first few days of July have continued to go up. So we're watching it closely because we've seen the negativity of what COVID can do both overall and in specific geographies like what happened in New York City. But the momentum in the purchase and sales side of the housing market has been, been quite strong now for a few months. Uh, and, and, you know, we're obviously hopeful that continues. But we're watching the COVID situation closely. Yeah. So overall, would you say that the pandemic is a catalyst for housing turnover for home sales? Like you said, in this area, we saw a lot of home sales in the suburbs when it was uh, in Manhattan really badly. What's happening now is it spreading throughout the south and west. Yeah, we're starting to see that, um, you know, in two different ways. Uh, so first off, there are some geographies where you're literally in the data seeing the rotation from urban to suburban living. New York City is the strongest example of that. We're seeing some of that in California. There's a few other examples. But in every urban geography, the web traffic of people and what they're searching for has changed versus six to 12 months ago to be much more suburban. So even in the urban geographies where that rotation has not happened in the actual housing purchases and sales yet, the consumer searching is going in that direction. Uh, and, and we continue to see that uh, uh, through the whole COVID crisis in the last three months. And I'm seeing here some of the features home buyers are looking for. 65% want access to a yard and outdoor space. 59% uh, want a laundry room. 46% want a patio or deck. Um, Absolutely. This sounds like those people who are frustrated by uh, having to shelter in place, stay at home and trying to figure out somewhere would be a little more more amenable. Um, And then tell me about the impact that rates is having. You know, how much of this is pandemic driven? How much of this is affordability? Well, I think there's a big piece of it that's pandemic driven, especially some of the pent up demand after that big drop in late March and April in terms of people signing new housing contracts. But the low rate thing is a huge benefit. You know, the mortgage application uh, you know, increases have looked great. And remember, we were starting off the year with a very strong housing market, right? Q1 housing growth, even with COVID hitting the last couple of weeks of March, was quite strong. We have a lot of good growth in our company. And so, you know, the low rates and is, is behind that also. And so, you know, there is a resumption of some of the momentum that the housing market was showing in Q1. We like the low rates, obviously, for housing. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but, the, but we're watching the COVID part closely. 
Yeah, so what do you think is going to happen over the next kind of six to nine months? You know, we had pent-up demand from the, when we basically had national shutdowns a few months ago, but now things are more or less open, but the pandemic is hitting, you know, case, the case numbers are at, at new highs. So if the economy kind of goes sideways, um, look at the airlines. I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of jobs of layoffs that are coming in, over the next couple of months' time. Do you think there could be a very different effect on the housing market in future months? Well, for sure, the housing market had that effect in March and April. Um, you know, our company, as an example, you know, we did furloughs, you know, at a pretty substantial scale and hours reductions in March and April. Other people in our industry did the same. Because of the volume trends I was talking about, we've been able to bring most of those people back from furlough and increase hours and do some debt refinancing and things like that that are really positive. That it goes, you know, where it goes from here, I think, is still pretty TBD. Um, the most important thing to keep in mind is the thing that is that drove the biggest reduction in housing is the is not the amount of COVID itself, but the degree to which the geographies are locked down. Yeah, it's the deep, deep, deep drop off in housing in the New York City area, um, and even in some of the hot spots right now that are a little bit more open, the continued positive momentum. So, look, we're going to move with the economy at one level and with the consumer, but. Um, you know, our industry, I think, has shown we can safely navigate transactions even in the midst of COVID for consumers. We love the virtual technology acceleration that our company has led, that consumers have adopted during this time. And it's a very hard thing to predict. But the last few months of momentum have been a good thing. Uh, and, and obviously, we're all rooting for as little impact from COVID on people's health and safety and business. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ryan, thank you so much for your insights. We appreciate it today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Ryan Schneider is the CEO of Realogy Holdings. Coming up, shares of Bed Bath & Beyond are sinking following results today. Now, the stock had run up huge. It was up 108% since the March low, giving back 24% of that today. Has the turnaround run aground? Plus, don't look now, but Chinese stocks are on a tear. We're going to have a closer look at what is driving these incredible gains and what it says about our markets after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. A little bit of a comeback for the markets this afternoon. Let's check on some of the levels here for the major averages. At the lows, the Dow was down 543 points. We're down 338 right now, so only about a 1.3% decline. The S&P is down just three quarters of a percent right now, or 23 points. And the Nasdaq has turned positive. No surprise, we've been talking about how it's hit dozens of record highs this year. Uh, today, it's up about two-tenths of a percent right now. We'll keep an eye on it. 10,512 is your level there, so we're over the 10,500 mark. Explains the sector performance. You can see behind me, technology, one of only two sectors in the green right now for the S&P. It's up about a quarter of a percent consumer discretionary, eking out a gain, communication services. These All three of these are kind of your big tech bellwether names right here. Communication services down fractionally. The worst performers today are the usual suspects of especially any time we have kind of the stay-at-home trade reascendant, which is what we're seeing today. Energy is down almost 4%. Financials are down 2.4%. Bob Asani was talking about that quite a bit. Industrials down 1.7% today. So again, a difficult place for some of the more cyclical-oriented names. Let's get over to Sue Herrera in the meantime for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Mayor Bill de Blasio helping to paint Fifth Avenue in front of Trump Tower with the words Black Lives Matter in giant yellow letters today. President Trump has called that project a symbol of hate. De Blasio countered by saying, quote, it is just a commitment to truth, end quote. 
Atlanta's mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, is going against Governor Brian Kemp by issuing her own order requiring face masks be worn in public. Well, the city of Atlanta has had to operate in a very different lane than the state of Georgia because the state of Georgia has been very irresponsible in the way that it has opened back up for business as if everything is normal. And 22 NBA teams participating in the season restart on July 30th will begin practicing today at Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando. The players are getting special rings, which will help to monitor their health. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour, Kel. I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Let's talk about the Chinese stock market. It's been on a tear lately with seven straight days of gains for the Shanghai Composite. It's up 16 percent in a month already. For more on what's driving the rally, let's bring in Seema Modi. Seema, what can you tell us? Kelly, a lot of this has to do with retail participation growing. There was a front-page editorial in the state-run Chinese newspaper earlier this week titled Healthy Bull Market. That encouraged retail investors, a dominant force in the mainland's equity market, to buy in. And it seems to have worked. We're right now looking at stocks in China trading at a five-year high. Also contributing to this outperformance, central bank stimulus. The COVID-19 case count is on the decline in China and a weaker dollar. In fact, the Chinese currency breaking above seven just yesterday, a sign that Beijing is trying to stabilize its market. Now, China's economy remains far away from a full recovery, but the latest read on manufacturing in June indicates an early sign of a rebound. We'll actually get a full read next week when GDP numbers are released. Kelly? I mean, the, the Chinese authorities aren't even really being shy about this. The media, they're, I mean, they, they literally have the pom-poms. Yeah, and by the way, this is a strategy they've used back in 2014. And, you know, talking up Chinese stocks is certainly a dangerous game. Back then when they did that, uh, it resulted in sort of this boom versus bust scenario. Yeah. So that's something to certainly watch. But interestingly enough, again, the retail participation, they play a big role in the Chinese market. They contribute about 80% of daily trading. Wow. All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi with that recap. Coming up, it's been a sea of red for the markets out there today, but one big box retailer is bucking the trend. We'll reveal that name and what's behind this big boost next. Plus, betting on roller coasters. Shares of Six Flags reversing course lower after a big upgrade today. Why does the street want to buy it in a pandemic? We're back in two. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is rapid fire. And here to break down the headlines are Michael Santoli, Eric Chemi and Rahel Solomon. It's great to have you all here. First up, we got to talk some Bed Bath & Beyond. Shares are plunging. They're down 25 percent today after reporting a nearly 50 percent drop in year on year sales in the first quarter. They also plan to close about 200 stores over the next two years to cut costs. Uh, Courtney Reagan spoke to the CEO, Mark Trittenden, this morning. Here's what he had to say. Over 500,000 people downloaded the apps. We had over 200 million unique visits to our website. We had 10% of our customers shopping our website completely new to Bed Bath & Beyond. And then another 40% of our existing stores-based customers starting to use us as an omni-channel retailer. So as we're coming back from the COVID moment, we think we're coming back with real brand strength, ease and convenience strength, and assortment curation strength that our guests are really leaning into. And Ms. Reagan has appeared for us as well with some more context on this. Courtney, so 82 percent sales increase in digital sales in the first quarter. Investors seem to be saying, so what? We don't we are not happy. 
Yeah, exactly, Kelly. I mean, I think obviously you you would see some digital strength if you didn't have stores, right? And a lot of what Bed Bath & Beyond sells are things that were in demand during the t- pandemic as we were all trying to make ourselves a little bit more comfortable at home. But this has got to be a show me story, Kelly. I mean, Mr. Tritton came in in November of 2019 and basically is starting to lay out a plan that kind of rips the guts out of Bed Bath & Beyond and starts it all over again. I mean, he's got five new executives in the C-suite. He's done a sale leaseback. He's looking at non-core assets to sell off. They tried to sell personalization.com, personalizationmall.com to 1-800-Flowers, though there's a lawsuit right now about whether or not that sale is actually going to go through because of the pandemic. <laughs> so there's a lot going on anyway, and then a pandemic happens. So I think it's just really hard to know if this is going to work out. Michael Santoli, why don't you think there's a better reaction? I mean, they are closing stores. Sometimes investors reward that. They think at least they'll stop shedding money. Yeah. uh, What's amazing to me, it's only about a billion dollar market value right now. And the market seems not to want to hear that a company of the scale of Bed Bath & Beyond that's been around for so long is kind of just getting started in Omnichannel. I mean, that really was the message conveyed right there. Um, So I don't think there was any... Uh, real persuasion out there that a store that has, I think, really gotten in this mode of having people come in, look around, uh, stumble on things serendipitously is going to be uh, figuring it out better than the targets out there. By the way, Wayfair, yeah. I know it's not the same kind of products, $20 billion market cap right now, 20 times bed bed. Wow. Yeah. And, and Kelly, what... I'll just say on the flip side, for those of us in New York City, it's it's sad to hear that these stores are going to be closing because we don't have the targets, bed, bath and beyond. That was the place that we went to get things for our home. So uh, I think Mike certainly makes a good point about the haves and the have nots. And it's maybe a little bit too late to really be accelerating into e-commerce. Yeah. But for those of us who only had this this company it's sad to see i know you try to get deliveries in the city like good luck to you it's a nightmare <laughs> i uh, i feel you uh anyway courtney we appreciate it thank you courtney reagan with that interview and the info on uh, bed bath and beyond today let's talk about this many employees are returning to work as some states reopen and restrictions get lifted but a number of them are doing so while still collecting unemployment rahel you've been following the story and i think it's important today with the high number of jobless claims still the people know not everyone who files a claim is 100% out of work. Not at all. And this is a story that's actually gotten quite a bit of traction. I posted it on my Instagram story, and people have been commenting all day about it. So here's how it works. So employers can sign up for this if their state allows it. It's allowed in about half the U.S. states and Washington, D.C. But essentially what happens is rather than lay off employees, you would sort of just reduce hours across your workforce or in certain divisions, thereby saving some money for the employer, but also saving some money long term because then you don't have to rehire workers and then retrain workers. That's a very expensive process. And then, of course, for the employees, well, they get to keep their job. Their hours are reduced and they can get partial unemployment depending on how much their hours were reduced. We're seeing this program really surge in popularity in states that carry it. In New York, for example, popularity is up 1,200 percent post-COVID as opposed to pre-COVID. Take a look at Arizona. That's up almost 5,500 percent. Ohio, 1,600 percent. For the states that offer this program, it's become wildly popular. Now, on the flip side, Kelly, I will say, I asked one of our experts that we talk to a lot on this unemployment beat, why wouldn't more states, all the states have this? And he said that there are some administrative burdens and the costs that come along with that. But he thinks it's extremely short-sighted. It's, Eric, it just reminds me of the kind of the data issues that we talk about so much. But again, with, especially with unemployment claims right now, 
it would be nice if there was a way that every single portion of this is delineated out. You know, pe- people can at least get this information. Okay, are they getting it, you know, full-time replacement on a part-time basis? You know, as Rahel has talked about, at what point do we move from federal to state programs? I mean, there's so much to unpack in here. Yeah, so much to unpack. I think most people don't realize that these are state-by-state programs. This yeah. is not a federal program that we do. I mean, the way that you've talked about recently with these triple P loans, a lot of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. People didn't know how it was going to work. So a lot of people didn't sign up. They didn't know it was going to make public. Maybe they wouldn't have signed up. I think we're seeing this with the unemployment process. I know some small business owners where I live and they're confused as to, well, why is this guy asking for unemployment? He only worked for me a little bit last year. There's right. a lot of confusion with how these programs are put out. Yeah. And more awareness of them, I think, now than ever. All right, next up, uh, the big news from the Ivy League yesterday was that they are canceling fall sports until at least January because of coronavirus. It makes it the first Division I conference to do so. CNBC spoke with Sydney Cummings, a Brown University soccer player. Here's her take on that decision. I really do believe that they're going to try to do whatever is best for us, whether that means canceling sports altogether or it means potentially playing fall seasons in the spring. Um, But it's hard. There's no way to sugarcoat it. And it's a difficult decision for everybody, no matter matter what class you are. And I mean, a huge revenue story, Eric. And we said they're the first Division One uh, schools or league. Is there an expectation that others will follow? So it depends on how you follow the money, right? So the Ivy League, they don't make money off of sports. It's an academic-focused organization. So they're going to lead the way in terms of not having sports. Remember, they led the way pulling, uh, ending their basketball tournaments. Everyone thought it was an overreaction. Then three days later, everything had been shut down across the country. So when you look at SEC football, something like that, they're clearly not looking at the Ivy League to wonder how they're going to deal with their football season. But they may still have no choice and have to cancel it or postpone it into the spring. And, Mike, I mean, you know, I don't think baseball would have been in jeopardy, but no. there are going to be a lot of sports and a lot of schools that don't make it through this pandemic. For sure. Uh, it, you know, obviously, you can't put the college teams or leagues in a, in a bubble like the pro leagues are doing right now. Uh, you're, do, you're talking about bus rides. Also, a lot of the schools, I think, are going on the basis of coming back to campus, but maybe with an idea toward, you know, later in the autumn or in the, in the winter, kind of going to online. So it just seems like there's too many moving parts. So many schools can just fall away. So probably not going to be the first thing uh, that these schools make sure uh, happens as they try to get back to, uh, to something like normal. Yeah. Yesterday, Eric Stanford said they're getting rid of 11 sports, 11 varsity sports, uh, men's and women's fencing, field hockey, rowing, sailing, squash, synchronized swimming, men's volleyball and wrestling. I mean, especially with Title IX, it's going to be the men's sports that take the brunt of this, right? right? Or, or supposedly equally, right? They should get canceled equally. Right. Uh, money losing sports, right? Most sports at most colleges, almost all of them lose money other than football and to some extent basketball. So you're going to see these kind of programs get cut. It's not just Stanford. Hundreds of sports teams across the country have been getting cut, and it's just going to continue. Well, let's talk about something a little more hopeful. You know Six Flags? Well, the shares, all right, they're lower today, but they got a bump initially. There was an upgrade to buy at Janie Montgomery Scott, citing an attractive valuation, I'm sure, and Six Flags exposure to some of the biggest U.S. markets. They're saying it's bearish on the broader theme park industry, including Cedar Fair and SeaWorld, but Six Flags, guys, is the lone standout. Um, okay, you know, Rahel, what I really want to talk about, did you guys see this story yes. today in the Wall Street Journal? That Okay, if you're in Japan, they're going to try to ban screaming on roller coasters because when you scream, you emit particulate. So even wearing a mask, they think it's dangerous. And I want to know, if you go to Six Flags and you can't scream on a coaster, why go? Well, you know what's funny? So CNBC.com published a firsthand account of uh, one of our reporters who went to Six Flags 
And he said that the experience was a little different, but it was still fun. And he said that one of the things that he noticed that was different is that when he was on one of the roller coasters, I myself am not a fan of roller coasters, but that's a story for another day. But he said when he was on the roller coaster, he had to hold down his mask. And I thought, what a weird thing to have to do. But yeah, apparently for people who still want to go to Six Flags, it's still an okay experience. One thing I will say, Kelly, is that I took a look at the note. The reason why analysts here like Six Flags as opposed to some of its competitors is because it has more geographic diversity as opposed to some of the other theme parks. They think that it's attractively um, priced. And they also know that, you know, in the short term, yes, these parks get like 50 percent of their income and their revenue in the summer months. That's pretty much a wash. But they say hold on to it long term. Yeah. It might be worth the ride. Yeah. No, you'd have to sort of look beyond the pandemic. I know Eric's not a coaster guy either. Mike, are, do you guys do family? I mean, the one thing I know, Kelly, uh, in, in Ken's article that Rahel was referencing, he said, the lines are still pretty long because they can't jam as many people under these roller coasters. So there's fewer people there. <laughs> but because they got a spacey ride, you can't sit next to somebody. You're still waiting at least an hour to get on a two-minute ride. That wow. seems a little weird. I would want to go at least avoid the lines. Exactly, Mike. I'll give you the last word. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't need an excuse not to go to the theme park, but if, <laughs> if the kids wanted to drag us to go, it's within a, dr- a drive, and I think that's one of the also the bullish cases on Six Flags over the others. You don't have to fly. Well, now you can also tell them to have to wait in a one-hour line that's right. and maybe not scream on the coaster. Anyway, thanks, everybody, today. We really appreciate it. Mike Santoli, Eric Chemi, and Rahel Solomon for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, shares of Wells Fargo are down about 10% from the March lows while the rest of the big banks have climbed higher. Now with layoffs expected, will Wells be able to right its wagon? We will have a bull bear debate on that stock next. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's been a tough few months for the banks, especially Wells Fargo. While the others like Goldman and Citi have recovered by double digits from their 52-week lows, Wells is up just 9% from its $22 mark. Since the market's notorious March 23rd low, it's the only major U.S. bank stuck in the red. It's also the only one to cut its dividend after failing to meet certain stress test requirements. And according to reports today, it may be the first to cut jobs this year. This says CNBC learns that Wells is implementing a big new change. Now it'll require new clients to bring at least a million dollars in balances if they want to refinance their jumbo mortgages. For more, let's bring in Steve Bigger. He's director of financial institutions research at Argus Research. And Gerard Cassidy is head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy and analyst at RBC Capital Markets. It's great to have you both here. Gerard, you are our bear, I believe. Uh, Tell me how deep the problems run at Wells Fargo. Sure, Kelly, thank you. Wells Fargo has a major turnaround that's underway, of course. They brought in a new CEO with Charlie Scharf. And our contention has always been the turnaround is just going to take longer than many people anticipate. And this is all before the COVID virus situation they were all very well aware of. And they will eventually turn it around. I have complete confidence in this new management team. They will do it. It's just our belief is it's just going to take a lot longer. I don't see the Fed lifting these uh, asset you know, cap uh, order that they put into place anytime in the near future, probably sometime in late 21 or 22. The Fed is in no rush, of course, to make it easier for Wells Fargo due to the fact that there's the political concerns that they have to be worried about as well. But it's not that the company won't turn around, completely believe it will. It's just going to take a lot longer than I think people are going to uh, realize. Sure. So, Steve, tell me why you have a buy rating and a $40 price target on the company. 
Sure. Well, I think we can agree on that Wells Fargo is, is a, a work in progress right now, clearly. Um, but, you know, long term, this franchise, I, th- I think, is very undervalued at, at 75 Roughly uh, 75% of book value. It's under you know 10 times depressed earnings, even assuming through uh, 2021. And uh, you know the, the certainly the the Federal Reserve asset cap on assets, which has now been in place for uh, about two and a half years. Uh, I'm just not sure it's in the public's best interest at this point to keep this company in the penalty box. Hmm. Uh, you know, since the sales scandal, now coming up on uh, four years uh, for much longer. We're trying to revive the economy. Wells is a obviously a major player in credit card home lending. Um, you know, the, the vast majority of, of management that was responsible for the sales scandal had been uh, long dismissed from the bank. The, the clawbacks of equity war- awards have already t- uh, taken place. They've made uh, pretty substantial changes to uh, their, their risk management practices. Uh, and uh, as Gerard mentioned, they have uh, Charlie Shaw for now is in, in his role now about nine months. And I think we're at the point where we should start seeing some of the financial goals and, and progress uh, as well as uh, an update on, on the asset uh, cap plan and if sure. they've submitted that and get, and get better timing. Yeah, so you think the turnaround maybe can move a little bit more quickly. Gerard, let me turn back to you. I thought uh, Steve's point was interesting uh, where he says, you know, it's not in the public's best interest anymore to keep Wells Fargo in the penalty box. I mean, this move where now you have to have a million-dollar balance to refinance your jumbo mortgage, what does that all tell you? Well, that's they're trying, you know, to work within that asset cap. Uh, they're right up at the top right now, Wells Fargo. Um, so therefore, they're really having a difficult time in, in growing their business and repositioning it because they've already done that fairly successfully over the last two and a half years since the asset cap has been put in place. But we've got to remember, the banking system is gigantic in the United States. Uh, Wells Fargo's market share is nowhere near like what we see up in Canada with some of those Canadian banks that have 20 plus percent market shares. So I think there's plenty of lending capability available in the banking system. And again, I want to say that the regulators want to see real progress. I know they're making progress, but they really they dug really deeply into Wells Fargo, probably deeper than any other bank during the financial crisis. And this, of course, came well after the financial crisis to fix what was wrong. And it's just going to take time. Steve, you know, if this does take time, what other options does Wells Fargo have? Well, uh, you mentioned the the report on the on the job cuts. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, that that's something that that they're going to do. I mean, to conserve capital, they're going to the, the dividend will get reduced, and and they have some cost cutting capabilities. Uh, you know, there's lesser activity uh, with the economy. That's less lending uh, activity, mortgage capital markets, et cetera. So. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I'm not. I'm not surprised to see Wells kind of right size for the environment and and you know try to get more efficient at the same time. And frankly, I was a bit surprised when a number of the large banks came out very early in the pandemic and said that they expected no job cuts right through the end of the year, uh, mm. with business conditions as as uncertain as they were at the time. So, uh, so I, I think that's you know certainly one way they've they've they've, they've got to get back to revenue growth clearly. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, they have some uh, efficiency moves to make. I know hearing you say that makes me wonder what we could be facing maybe turn of the year for the banks if the environment doesn't get better. Thank you both. Really appreciate it today. Great discussion. No yelling. (laughs) Uh, Gerard Cassidy and Steve Bigger on our bull bear debate over Wells Fargo today. Coming up, a new immigration policy is putting thousands of international students at risk of deportation and the CEO of the College Board is taking a stand against it. He joins us to discuss the ramifications next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two.
new immigration policy aiming to force international college students to take in-person classes this year or face deportation is drawing ire from higher education officials across the country. There are more than a million international students in the U.S. spending an estimated $45 billion and supporting about 450,000 jobs. In a Washington Post op-ed piece, uh, College Board CEO David Coleman and American Council on Education President Ted Mitchell write that the new policy puts already stressed budgets at risk and could permanently damage the reputation of higher education in the U.S. David Coleman joins me now for more on this topic. It's good to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much. So you think this is a political move that's basically aimed at forcing colleges to do in-person classes? It's quite a cruel political mood. Move. The federal government has threatened a million international students that they are at risk of deportation if their classes are online this fall. And that's causing terror throughout these students. Some of them have fighting prior illnesses and are in other very hard situations and are facing the fear that they may have to risk their health or be sent home to uncertain circumstances. They live here and they study here. And yes, it appears that this cruel act of anxiety and fear racing through this community is just a chip being used to try to force colleges to hold courses in person this fall. So Ken Cuccinelli, the acting deputy secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, was kind of defending this by saying it increases the flexibility for students because uh, the earlier rules only allow you to take one course online. Now you could take more than that as long as at least one of those classes is in person. I mean, this just sounds like a mess. And there's a lot at stake here for the for the schools, because I understand some of them could get 20 percent of their revenues from international students. Right. Yeah. Let's keep this very simple. We're in the middle of a pandemic that has scrambled everyone's expectations of what courses will be online or not this fall. And our top priorities have to be the health of faculty and the health of students in that environment. Deporting students based on what their colleges decide to do is simply a crazy option. So what, despite what the undersecretary says, I think the only sane policy here is to be flexible for whatever emerges this fall that is safe for the adults and students, and then allow students to stay who are here on valid visas and study. Couldn't the colleges offer their international students uh, the ability to take at least one of their classes in person and solve this? Imagine, for example, that student or faculty member is at risk of COVID for a prior condition. Why, why are we inventing these remarkable workarounds and fear throughout the community when, if I were to say to you, why not instead let colleges and students best handle a pandemic health risk and allow them to stay and study as they've earned the right to do? No, 100 percent. But I'm just saying, you know, at this work, our workplace is open. We have, you know, five or 10 percent of the people around here as as per usual. And that's why I'm on this set right now. If you told yeah. me I was going to be deported unless I came in, I'd probably come in. So I'm just saying if the colleges want to yeah, protect these let me, students, let me give you they a put case. four kids in a classroom just, just, and just, say, you know, at least this way you're not going to be deported? Yeah. Just to be clear, we're talking about thousands of students at many of our universities. So it's not just a small handful. As you said earlier, 20 percent of income and a large portion of students can be international. So at this point, it's a major operation happening at the moment before the fall. Let me give you just a few examples so we get a little more concrete. A young woman named Maha Almahud at the University of Washington uh, she has a prior condition of blood cancer uh, that she's getting over now and has hence been avoiding and staying properly home. Would you say it's no big deal to insist 
this, that she attend a class or classes in person to avoid the decree. And I just want to make further clear, no one knows if attending one or two classes or what rules will, will, will exactly avoid deportation. So you've sparked enormous fear throughout this community. They could be summarily sent home yeah. for no good for the United States. No, I take your point. I take your point. Absolutely. I know several of the schools have sued the administration over this, so we'll see uh, what the next steps are. David Coleman, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for your time. David Coleman is the CEO of the Conference Board. That does it for The Exchange. Thank you for tuning in. And- You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.